Welcome to the HVMN Podcast, your resource for evidence-based nutritional strategies, cognitive performance, and fitness science. Thank you for joining us. This week's episode is truly the embodiment of the popular motto, taking your health into your own hands. The story of Dr. Terry Walls is a fascinating, deeply personal dive into the ties between nutrition and disease. Dr. Walls is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa and has struggled with secondary progressive multiple sclerosis for more than a decade. In the year 2000, Walls was jogging every morning, but just three years later, she found herself confined to a wheelchair suffering from chronic pain and brain fog. Despite having access to the latest drugs from reputable establishments like the Cleveland Clinic, it wasn't until a radical change in her diet and additional interventions like neuromuscular stimulation that Dr. Walls finally felt she was on the road to a form of recovery. Today, she can walk, work, and has since completed an 18-mile bike race. Jeff, take it away. Dr. Walls, great to have you in the program. Thank you so much. I'm always glad to uh, chat. Uh, so folks that aren't aware of your personal story here, perhaps that's a good jumping off point to describe your formal training and background and how you got interested in sort of the dietary nutritional side of treat, treating yourself. Yeah. So I'm a professor of medicine here at the University of Iowa, and uh, I was teaching medical students, residents, uh, running in primary care clinics here at the VA in the uh, Iowa City University of Iowa. Uh, I came in 2000. At that point, I'm a very conventional internal medicine doc, very skeptical of functional medicine, uh, anti-aging restorative medicine, complementary alternative medicine. <clears throat> I definitely believe in the latest drugs, the newest technology. I And uh, at that point, I, I'm being evaluated because I've developed a new problem with some stumbling and weakness in my left leg. Uh, I ultimately see a neurologist, get uh, MRIs of my brain, my spinal cord, uh, nerve conduction velocity tests, uh, lots of blood tests. I have lesions in my spinal cord. I have abnormal spinal fluid. My neurologist reminds me that 13 years earlier, I'd been evaluated for a uh, bout of dim vision in my left eye. And so the conclusion is that my episode 13 years earlier was optic neuritis, and that what I'm having right now is relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. Like many physicians, I immediately turn to the research uh, and begin reading uh, the latest PubMed.gov. Uh, and I see that within 10 years of diagnosis, one half will be disabled due to severe fatigue. And uh, a third will need a, a cane, walker, or wheelchair. Uh, and so... And again, being a conventional academic uh, physician, I decide that what I want to do is treat my disease aggressively. Uh, so I uh, seek out the best MS center that I could find that's doing clinical research. That's the Cleveland Clinic. I see their best people. I take the newest disease-modifying drugs, and I continue to go downhill. Uh, after two years, my Cleveland Clinic physicians tell me about the work of Lauren Cordain, uh, and I read his papers, uh, his books. Uh, and decide after 20 years of being a vegetarian, following a low-fat diet, thinking that was the most health-conscious uh, thing that I could do, I uh, decided to go back to eating meat. I give up all grain, all legumes, all dairy. I continue to decline. My physicians tell me that I've converted to secondary progressive multiple sclerosis and that functions once lost are unlikely to return. 
I, and so they recommend that I take uh, mitoxantrone. The side effects of that are higher uh, activation of uh, viral infections, fungal infections, tuberculosis, secondary leukemias, uh, lymphoma, uh, leukemia, uh, congestive heart failure. But I'm more terrified of becoming p- potentially bedridden and demented, so I gladly sign up to take my mitoxantrone. I take several rounds, and I continue to decline. Uh, then they switch me to Salsept. I continue to decline, and now I have oral ulcers and have a lot of bruising and bleeding. At this point, I'm reaching the conclusion that uh, taking the newest drugs from the best people in the country at the best center in the country is not likely to stop my slide into a bedridden and demented life. I have trigeminal neuralgia as part of my MS symptoms, which means in addition to my progressive weakness, uh, uh, I have uh, sensory problems with episodes of electrical face pain across uh, either the right side of my face or the left side of my face. That's getting more difficult to control. I'm needing higher and higher doses of gabapentin. And so, you know, I decided to go back to start reading the basic science because I know how bad things are going to get bad. Uh, and uh, as I'm reading the animal models of MS, of Parkinson's, of ALS, of uh, Alzheimer's, I decide that mitochondria are the drivers of disability. And I slowly began developing a supplement cocktail to support my mitochondria. After about six months, the conventional side of me is really pissed off. And I decide that I, you know, I'm wasting my money on all these supplements. Nothing's happening. I'm certainly no better. And I stop everything. Hmm. I, and 36 hours later, I realized, like, man, I am even worse off than I was before. I can't really get out of bed. I'm exhausted. I go uh, three more days, and my spouse says, you know, honey, I think you ought to take these again. Uh, and so I take my supplements, and the next day I can get up and go to work. And I think, wow, this is phenomenally exciting. So two weeks later, I do the same thing. I stop all my supplements, and 36 hours later, I have worsening fatigue. I, and so now I'm very excited that I'm learning stuff that my neurologist, my primary care doc aren't telling me. Uh, and I'm even more excited about reading the literature, experimenting on myself. Uh, the university and the VA, uh, in uh, trying to help me by redesigning my job multiple times, had uh, placed me on the Institutional Review Board, so I uh, tell the IRB that I would like to review all the brain-related studies. Uh, And so I'm getting more and more comfortable reading uh, brain clinical trials uh, and am slowly adding more supplements. And I reached the conclusion that, you know, okay, they aren't helping me, uh, they're not improving me, but they're clearly doing something, and if all they do is slow the speed of my decline, that's a pretty great thing. Uh, and so I'm uh, immensely grateful. And, you know, I, as many people with a progressive neurologic disorder, I'm, uh, you know, reaching that uh, period of acceptance like, okay, I'll just take each day as it unfolds. I don't know what it means, but I appear to be slowing down my decline, at least somewhat. Now, keep in mind, I've, I've had a very rapid decline to go from being, an, you know, still athletic and jogging uh, in 2000 to being in a two-recline wheelchair in 2003 
to in 2007 being unable to sit up in a regular chair. I was just going to ask about the emotional state. I mean, you're a classically trained doctor. You know the prognosis is not optimistic. I mean, you look at the curves and all of that. I'm just curious to think, you know, rewinding back to 2000, just on the emotional side, uh, I'm curious about the mental resiliency to realize that the percentages and probabilities weren't great, but you're doing everything to, 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 to prevent decline, all of that. I'm curious to rewind your thoughts and, and get into your mental state there. Sure. So in 2000, you know, I'm reading the literature, getting uh, really quite agitated when I see that progressive nature within 10 years, unlikely to be working due to fatigue and likely to have gait disability. In two years, I can tell, uh, and so I, I get uh, really agitated. My uh, spouse sits me down and says, uh, you got to stop reading the literature. It's just getting you upset. We'll find you the best MS center in the country. We'll go there. Let them take care of you. And I agree to do that. So I stop reading the literature. We find the best people. And I, and I start taking the drugs and let them manage me. As I'm getting more disabled, um, I, I'm really having to reimagine my life. Uh, as this more disabled individual, I have uh, young kids. You know, at, at diagnosis, my son was eight, my daughter was five. I, and I had presumed that I'd be teaching them resilience and perseverance by teaching them uh, cross-country skiing, wilderness travel, uh, backpacking, kayaking, doing martial arts, doing athletics. And of course, it's very rapid, like that is not going to happen. You're teaching them by you surviving. By I mean, yeah. realizing that my kids were watching. Uh, and so I'm thinking, if my most important um, uh, purpose is to have emotionally resilient and economically stable kids, then all I've got is to teach them that, yep, life's not fair but you get up and go to work every day anyway, and you do the best you can. Power to that. So as you're declining, it sounds like there's a couple breakthroughs around realizing that this could, you know, maybe a root cause here was a mitochondrial dysfunction, and then looking at the supplements, and it sounds like that started to get you on a path towards, okay, maybe I can start taking some of the interventions into my own hands. What Was there an initial paper that sparked that, uh, what, what was the initial supplement? What was the initial kind of combination? The that initial paper was by Beal, B-E-A-L, and he was talking about bioenergetics, and it was the study for Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he was talking about lipoic acid and carnitine. Uh, and so he had a few other papers, and at the time it was lipoic acid, carnitine, and creatine uh, were the initial three uh, that I used. Uh, then I added uh, uh, coenzyme Q uh, in there. Uh, and at that time, you know, I'm still taking a variety of prescription meds. So I'm making an appointment with my primary care doc to check on these supplements uh, and the drug interaction. And there's a long conversation. My primary care doc was not entirely comfortable with all of this. Uh, and so that, that was a vigorous uh, debate. Uh, that I had to uh, work through, and they wanted me to do things one at a time. Uh, and so we did that one at a time, uh, adding those supplements. And that's part of why it took several months to get the sword out. And then, you know, when nothing much happened, after a few months of that, I just 
again, the skeptical conventional person said, yeah, this is crazy. I'm just making expensive urine. And, you know, I, and I quit everything uh, in disgust. Um, it was interesting. It's about 36 hours later. I, I was definitely more fatigued and difficulty getting out of bed. Um, and, you know, I just thought, okay, maybe I'm getting the flu. Who knows what? And on the third day, my, my wife says, you know, honey, I think you ought to take these again. <laughs> Yeah, and so I took them, and then the following morning, I felt better. I thought, wow, that's interesting. Uh, and so two weeks later, you know, I did the same thing. I stopped them all. It took about 36 hours, and it's sort of like suddenly I'm out of gas, out of energy, and I uh, just really couldn't function very well. I mean, it's a proper washout period, right? Like you're basically running a proper N equals one clinical trial in yourself, a washout period, the test intervention, there was some signal Maybe it's placebo or coincidence. Let's wash out. Let's try again. And you, you got some signal. And it's like, wow, that was really interesting. So now I review an IRB protocol that uses electrical stimulation of muscles uh, in people who've been acutely uh, injured for their spinal cord and acutely paralyzed. Uh, so it gets me curious, is that a strategy that will work for uh, MS? Uh, so I read 212 papers. It doesn't take that long, actually. Uh, <laughs> I, and I convinced my physical therapist to add that to my very tiny physical therapy program that we've got going for me. Oh, another month later, uh, I come across the Institute for Functional Medicine's course on neuroprotection. I order that course, uh, and I take that, and I have a longer list of supplements. They talk a lot more about mitochondria. I'm, I'm really excited about that. I add these longer list of supplements, you know, and not a lot's happened yet, but now I have another really big aha moment, and that is like, what if I redesign my diet that I'm taking in supplement form, uh, and I'm going to redesign my foods, because I'll probably pick up more nutrients in the food than are in the supplements, and uh, so that's a little more research, um, the dietitians don't know the that the librarians don't know, so it's more internet-based search, and the Linus uh, Pauling Institute for Micronutrients turns out to be very helpful. Uh, and so I, I, I'm, I've restructured my diet, I've reduced my meat, ramped up the vegetables in a very specific way, uh, and I start this new way of eating uh, in December. And then it's time to go off to my clinic and the first week, I, I just watch. Now, I should be able to just watch. That, you know, that, how hard is that? I can sit in my wheelchair, sort of recline back. And then the second week, I uh, am beginning to examine these patients. And at the end of the week, I realized, like, you know, I actually did that. And it wasn't too bad. Uh, and uh, by the end of January, it's clear that I can actually do this. And I begin to think that, you know, my mental clarity is actually a little bit better. My energy is a little bit better. And my pain is less. I, and in three months' time, I begin to realize that, in fact, I am uh, feeling strong enough that I decide I'm, I'm going to try walking with a cane. Uh, and then uh, I'm soon walking without a cane. Uh, and then uh, I, I decide after a family meeting, because my family all has to weigh in on this, that I'd like to try uh, biking. 
because uh, I'm walking around the block, and uh, so they decide I can try biking. And so I bike around the block. Uh, I'm crying. My wife's crying. My kids are crying. Uh, because it was at that point that I, I, I began to realize that I really am recovering and that who knows how much recovery might be possible. Yeah, and I want to re-underline this point because essentially what you're what is traditional medical consensus that this is monotonically decreasing function. This is progressively getting worse. You may be able to slow, but you're not going to get better. So I think just for clarity for the for the listener, what are the core aspects of the WALS protocol that you were implementing and testing and, and doing research on? So the paleo diet, uh, and I've structured the paleo diet in a very specific way. I want to remind everyone that the paleo diet, as described by Cordain, when I, when I just emphasized the removal of grains, dairy, and legumes, was not enough. Yeah, I continued to decline. I added supplements from my mitochondria, which were clearly helpful, but was not enough. They slowed my decline, but did not lead to my recovery. The e-stem, which was helpful in improving my muscles, was not enough. It was when I uh, really structured the diet in a very precise way to ramp up the nutrients. Uh, I added meditation. I continued to work closely with my physical therapist. So it's really this very comprehensive diet and lifestyle program designed to optimize my mitochondria, optimize detox, um, optimize uh, muscle strength uh, strength training, and lower my cortisol. It was that whole package together that that led to really a, a dramatic uh, improvement in strength, uh, uh, and endurance, and mental clarity um, over uh, the next twelve months. That was really just dramatic. Fascinating. And then I'm curious in terms of the 2010, setting up the clinical trial or the or requiring the funding for that. Uh, what was the end result there? Uh, how did that go? And, and, and fast forward the last nine years to 2019 in terms of you refining this protocol. Right. Um, so I, the uh, manufacturers of electrical stimulation device, uh, I, uh, they gave us devices that we could use uh, and some supplies. So uh, that, that was in-kind support. Uh, a group in Canada uh, that I'd reached out to that had uh, originally – uh, facilitated my understanding of the paleo diet, uh, Ashton Embrace Group, uh, direct to MS. Uh, they had become up to Canada. I gave a lecture, uh, met with their board, uh, and they gave us, you know, a, a very small amount of pilot funding. And then the university supported me with in-kind support from uh, undergraduate uh, research volunteers and a PhD student. Uh, worked in the lab, and she got her dissertation uh, uh, from uh, our experiment. So I put together the, the support from uh, a variety of, uh, uh, of sources, and my chief of staff at the VA gave me two days a week unfunded time to do the work. So uh, the, the VA helped, the university helped, uh, and the uh, Direct MS Charity, the Canadians, and the uh, uh, manufacturer of the therapeutic um, uh, electrical therapy device helped. Awesome. And then, so as you were going and, and running this, what was the end size and uh, what were the end results? 
we got 20 people through uh, through uh, 12 uh, 12 months, uh, and the primary outcome was what would affect on uh, fatigue severity. Uh, we also measured quality of life. Uh, we measured uh, anxiety, depression. Uh, we measured walking function. Uh, we measured uh, hand function. Uh, and in the second uh, group of 10, we uh, measured their MRI results as well. Uh, and so uh, we have some biomarkers and we have a freezer full of blood uh, that we uh, hope to analyze as we uh, can get some more uh, curious investigators. Uh, uh, and you know the, the, the primary outcome though was, would people do this? And then secondarily, was it safe? And then secondarily, what was the effect on fatigue, quality of life? But the primary outcome measure was simply, would people do it? Right. So this is more of like a phase one then. This is more of a safety and compliance study rather than a pure efficacy study. This is a safety and feasibility study. Uh, and so the most important question was, could would people do it? The answer was yes. Was it safe? The uh, biggest uh, problem was if you're overweight, you lost weight. Which is reasonable. <laughs> The other requirement was that, so I, I got to do my first 10, then I had to report back to the IRB, uh, uh, the safety, the adverse, could people uh, implement this? Uh, and they needed to, I needed to be able to show that there was a trend in the correct direction. Mm-hmm. Well, there wasn't a trend. There was a stunning p-value in terms of the uh, reduction fatigue. Uh, it was very large. The fatigue scale goes from seven, total fatigue in every aspect of your life, to one, no fatigue in any aspect of your life. Wow. So that that dropped by 2.38 uh, points. So that's a huge, huge drop in fatigue. And the p-value was less than 0.0008. So very large, very significant. We were given permission to do the next 10. Uh, and they too could implement it. Uh, it was safe. Uh, and once again, we had a very large, very significant drop in uh, fatigue severity. I mean, if this was a drug, this would have been a blockbuster drug, right? I mean, oh, absolutely. It, so it, it just—I'm curious to hear your thoughts as you see this data, which is pretty stunning in terms of again in the context of traditional uh, consensus. This is a progressive, monotonically decreasing function, and you're able to boom pretty drastically improve fatigue. But, you know, in all fairness, this is a single-arm safety and feasibility study. So the next thing you have to do is a randomized study, which we yep. did. Yep. Uh, and, you know, uh, that, and we were able to do a much shorter. Um, so we just did a 12-week intervention because we could see that you, you get a big change within 12 weeks. Uh, and we did it with relapse remitting MS, uh, 12 weeks. Again, uh, you came in, you had your baseline assessments, then you got randomized. You either got trained on the diet. Or, or not. And we just did diet. So we simplified the regimen. Uh, and again, we showed large, dramatic uh, reduction in fatigue, uh, improvement in quality of life, improvement in motor function in the intervention group as compared to the control group. Uh, then we did uh, another pilot study uh, comparing the ketogenic diet, my original Walls diet, to weightless control. And that study uh, that is under review. Uh, but anyway, I'm smiling, uh, fun results. Uh, now we have a much larger study 
funded by the uh, Multiple Sclerosis Society, comparing a low-fat diet to the WALS diet. Uh, we'll be analyzing the data from that study this time next year. Uh, we have enrolled uh, 96 subjects, um, and so we'll have a much larger group. Uh, and again, it's randomized, so uh, that it's going to be uh, really exciting to look at uh, those results when we're all done, and we'll we'll see what we find. Very cool. I, I'm glad you touched on the ketogenic diet because that's definitely a topic that we've discussed a lot in our community on the on the HVMN program, and obviously there's interesting data and application of ketogenic diet for epilepsy and and, and some early data around neurological conditions. I was actually curious to get your thoughts on on. Is the walls that is it, in, it? Are you producing ketones? Are you restricting carbohydrates and grains enough for you're producing ketones? Uh, we're, no, we're, we don't produce ketones. You know, the original diet when we looked at uh, baseline, people would come in about 220, 240 grams of carbs uh, uh, at baseline. At 12 months, uh, they'd be about 100 grams of carbs, so markedly less. Uh, we weren't measuring ketones, but I doubt that they're ketogenic. Uh, in general, at 100, 110 grams. Uh, in my third study, uh, we did have a ketogenic arm. Uh, and so in that arm, we, people were uh, in ketosis. Uh, and I, I've written about uh, why I think ketogenic diets may be superior and may be beneficial, certainly whenever there is a mitochondrial component uh, to the illness. Uh, there's a reason to think that ketogenic uh, eating may be very beneficial. Um, uh, I think you'll still want to address um, the other nutritional components. You'll still want to address uh, gene expression um, and uh, microbiome uh, issues. Uh, and so it would have to be very thoughtfully applied. A lot of the ketogenic diets are designed around dairy have a lot of casein in them, have a lot of egg in them, which from my uh, read of the literature uh, is would rev up uh, inflammatory uh, cytokines. Uh, and IGF-1, all, all, the, all the growth factors. It's going to create a lot of problems. Okay. So I, I, I think it, it depends on how your ketogenic diet is constructed, whether the, the net benefit of being ketosis, uh, it will be a benefit, or will you have created uh, a lot of inflammation because of the IGF-1, uh, because of the lectins uh, from the uh, casein and the lectins uh, in the eggs that you aren't getting the benefit that you could have? Uh, I used uh, a MCT uh, version that I think is uh, has fewer lectins in it. Um, it might be that fasting-making diets would do better. It might be that periodic fasting would do better. Um, so these are certainly areas that we want to investigate. Mm -hmm. uh, I find myself, um, you know, uh, for years I was very, uh, very much in ketosis. Uh, now I'm much more into seasonal ketosis, where I will do uh, intense ketosis during the winter. But, you know, it's summer now, my berries are coming in, I'm eating my berries. Uh, and so during summer, I'll have more carbs. Uh, and then during winter, 
uh, I'm back in much more of a ketogenic diet. Interesting. Oh. So it's a cyclical, almost seasonal ketosis. A, a seasonal ketosis. The other thing that I like to do is periodic fast. I like to do periodic water fast. How long are your fasts? Seven days. And that's a long fast. Now, some very interesting changes in terms of uh, stem cells happen when you have that longer fast. Uh, interesting changes on nerve growth factors and hormonal signaling. Yeah, BDNF as well, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Great stuff. Uh, however, it's also uh, challenging uh, for your cortisol. It's challenging for your thyroid. It's challenging for your sex hormones. So uh uh, how often should you do a periodic fast? I think that uh, is in question. Who's the right candidate for a periodic fast? Uh, that's in question. You certainly, I, I think it's uh, worth considering, but you absolutely want to do that in collaboration with your medical team. One thing I want to highlight and, and, and echo back is the the formulation of a ketogenic diet. I mean, I think the definition is essentially your body producing ketones, but the way you induce that ketogenesis can be very different. As you're saying, you can go something with high casein, high egg, which, you know, there's trade-offs and benefits and cons there, pros and cons there. But if you're really triggering growth factors, inflammation, you might be down, you know, triggering some of the negative effects. And how do you balance that versus a cleaner or MCT, potential exogenous ketones or ketone esters in, in, in inducing ketone or ketosis? There's definitely some nuance there. And the thing I want to remind everyone is when we're in ketosis, your hormonal signaling and your brain is interpreting this as you're starving for nutrition so my brain is and my body is shifting towards it's not a good time to reproduce. I should be sort of hibernating. Uh, and so I'm down I'm shifting my hormonal signaling toward towards more of that hibernation state. Yep. Uh, I'm not reproducing. Uh, and so I, I am doing some signaling changes that are, are great for repairing neurodegeneration. And of course, I got a screwed up brain with my uh, progressive MS, so that, that is a good thing. But for a long-term uh, optimal health is signaling to my body that there's not enough nutrition and that I'm starving. Is that really good for long-term health? Maybe not. Uh, is it good for seasonal, for, for particularly if your ancestors came from an area that had winter, th then you probably have some reasons to think that you've had uh, hundreds, maybe thousands of generations that have been used to seasonal starvation during winter and that that was apparently okay because we had reproductive success. But I, I don't know that we have any societies that have really shown us from an evolutionary evolutionary basis that it's okay for your body to think it's been starving for nutrients for years on end. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's open. It's an open question. That reminds me of the cyclical keto diet that was done on animal model on, on rats over at the Buck Institute showing that a cyclical keto diet was if I believe even more effective than a permanent keto diet on longevity and health span for mice. So reflecting kind of your observation that it's, and I think it's right, it's an open question whether being in a permanent state of ketosis is actually optimal for longevity. But there is like pretty exciting data around HAC inhibition, some of the uh, epigenetics of having ketones in your system as a signaling molecule. So I think it is, it is quite a bit to unpack. So I, I like to uh, think of the ancestral model as a way of thinking through what would have my ancestors done 
then I like to look to functional medicine to figure out, okay, so what were the molecules doing? What does science tell us are the molecular mechanisms as to why these ancestral principles may have had greater reproductive success? And then I can sort of use the combination of those two things to think about, okay, how would I replicate that a little better, a little more effectively, and still get the conveniences of living with my computer and going to work? And and uh, how can I merge the two? I mean, it sounds like to me, the ancestral best practices seem like a good directional signal of hypotheses to test, right? And I think that's where you're taking it. Like these are a reasonable set of hypotheses that generations of us have been living around. We should understand the mechanisms of action here. Uh, do you feel like that's becoming more popular in traditional medical thinking? Uh, I think in terms of what I've seen, there's definitely, I think, a shift of opinion towards diet, towards lifestyle. So in 2008, when I started talking around town about diet and lifestyle, uh, people were very alarmed, very concerned. I got banned as a speaker for creating <laughs> false hope, uh, which I had to explain to my chief of staff and the uh, chair of medicine. And then, uh, so I got counseled on how to speak more cautiously and document my medical records more cautiously about changing physiology. Uh, and it was probably very helpful to have gotten that. Uh, then we do our clinical trial. I had to do a, a pre-trial uh, where people analyzed my diet to show that my crazy diet that excluded whole food groups was still nutritionally sound, no obvious uh, serious nutritional deficits. Uh, then I was able to do my clinical trial. Uh, and my partners were very upset that I'm doing the same diet intervention for everyone because you know you got to personalize things terry and i'm like well we all have cells in mitochondria that's crazy <laughs> and now and then in 2014 in clinical there are four dietary intervention studies i'm doing three of the four for ms there's one other study uh, that's studying uh low fat now in 2019 so 10 years after I've been doing uh, these dietary intervention studies, there are, there are now 12 dietary intervention studies, and I'm involved in four of the 12. Uh, uh, and I mean, it's exciting because now we have a ketogenic, uh, modified Atkins, uh, fasting mimicking diet, low glycemic index, uh, uh, gluten-free, modified paleo, uh, Mediterranean, uh, and a low-fat diets that are being investigated. Mm -hmm. So we've made a lot of progress uh, as we figure out uh, that diet uh, impacts the, the gene expression, uh, it impacts uh, the microbiome, uh, and now that my basic science colleagues are, are uh, have a little bit more of the mechanisms that we can test in animal models, and we're willing to do this in human studies, um, uh, more studies are being being done. You know, here here at the university. Some of my uh, partners uh, are, are so intrigued uh, and they're so excited to be working with me because their response is, in every other circumstance, every other disease state, they make an animal model, study the animal model for decades, and then they finally do a clinical trial in humans. I'm the first one that has studied it in humans first, and now we're making animal model studies to understand what's going on with the dietary interventions that I created. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just, it's pretty, it must it must be really vindicating or rewarding. I mean, again, like you, 
this is 19 years since your initial diagnosis in 2000. And it's also become not just a personal battle, but it's really at the forefront of an intervention that might be able to help a large population of a very, you know, bad prognosis disease. Well, you know, my, my, my uh, first mission was helping my kids uh, grow up to be health, happy, healthy adults yeah. that were financially successful. Uh, but now my mission is to create an epidemic of health uh, and to teach the public and clinicians that the root, the best way to treat chronic disease is to create health. And the best way to create health is by teaching people why health behaviors are so powerful and to teach them these radical things known as vegetables are good for you, that uh, cooking at home is critical, that learning how to meditate and to move are critical to your health, uh, in that the, the real drivers of chronic disease are sugar, white flour, and processed foods that have are radical changes to our food supply. That we, we can eat meat and survive. We can eat vegetables as long as we still have some meat and survive. If we eat white flour, sugar, and processed foods, we wreck our microbiome, our microbial metabolites, and we're going to die of chronic disease. I mean, it sounds like in 2010, you started doing the studies, and it's been nine years. And I think you, you've been very cautious in particular about how you state the results and claims, which I think is the discipline and the evidence required to, 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 to do this properly. I think on the podcast or on the industry side, I can kind of make just more, you know, make broader strokes here. But I think you've done, you know, nine, 10 years of work to even get to this point where you have promising data on these dietary interventions, which is worth mentioning that there's a lot of hard work. And we've done some human studies over at HVMN. I just know how involved and detail-oriented. It's just a lot of details behind yeah, the scenes. It's a lot of, it, it's a lot of work. It's exciting. It's exhilarating. You know, it's hard to sleep at night because it's so exciting. It's so fun. You know, and we're planning um, uh, the the next uh, studies, and we and we do this through philanthropic support. We're going to compare the Walls protocol, uh, diet lifestyle in newly diagnosed MS patients to usual care, getting drug therapy in MS patients, uh, and um, we're starting our IRB application, uh, uh, and we'll plan to begin enrolling uh, people into that study. Uh, this fall as we wind down my current study. Interesting. I want to ask one one question. This might be more speculative, but there's, I think what you're, when you're talking about refined carbohydrate, sugar intake, you know, these seem to be critical causal factors for some of the metabolic syndrome, diabetes, obesity, epidemic. And I think this is ancillarily related. Uh, the question is, does your understanding of the etiology of MS change given your understanding of how to treat it? Or is this still a genetic factor plus diet intervention on top triggering MS? We have some genetic vulnerabilities. There are probably 200 to 300 different genes that increase your risk for MS uh, and for any autoimmune condition. Uh, the vast majority of folks who have that gene won't develop MS or the autoimmune condition. It's this very complicated interplay then between the genes that you have your infection history, your vitamin D level, your uh, food that you ate at birth, your whether you're vaginal or C-section birth, what you're eating currently, your social network, your lifetime events, life events, that all of that complicated stuff interplays to do you develop a autoimmune condition, 
which autoimmune condition you develop. And if we don't address all these root causes, what will be the next autoimmune condition that you develop? And you'll keep developing them until you're disabled and die. Uh, so it's, it's complicated. Uh, the vast majority of risk, probably 95%, is diet, lifestyle, environmental stuff. One of the questions I always like asking towards the end here is, if you had infinite money, infinite resources, infinite you know, human subjects or animal subjects to tinker with and be God over, what would that study look like? Newly diagnosed MS patients, uh, clinically isolated syndrome patients come in uh, and we uh, evaluate them with a full functional medicine assessment, uh, at, including an MRI uh, and spinal taps. We train them on uh, the Wall's diet, therapeutic diet, lifestyle, uh, and we're able to tailor it based on the functional medicine assessment. And we compare that to people getting usual care, newly diagnosed. We do the same uh, evaluations, but we don't do anything with that. We just let them get conventional therapies. And we give them support, the intervention group support over the year, uh, bring them back, repeat all the measures, and we see what happens to their uh, disease activity, to their function, uh, and we see what happens to their microbiome, uh, to their auto uh, antibody markers, to the inflammatory cytokines, uh, to their uh, uh, hormonal status. It probably cost me a couple million bucks. Uh, it would be fabulous. You know, and ideally you have about uh, 50 people in each arm. Uh, uh, we. We're trying to do 20 in each arm uh, and to freeze a lot of biospecimens. Um, right now, uh, I'm still trying to raise money so I could get the analysis of all these biospecimens. We're going to collect them uh, and conduct the studies, uh, and I'm still out looking for people to uh, help fill in uh, for the analyses of all the biomarkers that we'd like to do. 100%. I think this is super exciting work. So where do people follow along? Uh, where do people figure out how to support or contribute or stay involved? Uh, so uh, first thing, if you just go to terrywalls.com uh, forward slash uh, research papers, you can download uh, the various research papers that we have. So that's a great place to start. You could go to terrywalls.com forward slash diet, get a one-page summary of the diet that we've originally studied uh, and are continuing to investigate. So I would start there. Uh, and then... If you want to learn more, if you're a healthcare practitioner, think about coming to my uh, in-person seminar where we train practitioners. Uh, we have uh, members of the public that come to that seminar. They don't stay quite as long as my practitioners, but they learn a great deal as well. Uh, it's really just so transformative. Uh, and if you want to um, reach out uh, and support the study, uh, we have links to that uh, at terrywalls.com. Uh, the um, uh, you could contact my team at uh, customer support at terrywalls.com and we would give you and put you in contact with our uh, development officer who could assist with uh, making a donation to the research project. Incredible. Again, this is a fascinating conversation and just an inspiring story of just both personal resilience and then turning that resilience into really a, 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 a really just a, 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 a very productive scientific, question and, and, and path. So very excited to 
follow and, and, and see the published work and, and, and hopefully it turns out well. Well, we'll learn a great deal. It's, it's going to be just tremendous, uh, whatever we find uh, in my current study and whatever we find you know, in the next study comparing the WALS protocol to usual care. Uh, it's important work, transformative work, and we're thrilled to get to do that. All right. Thank you so much, Terry. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. If you want to learn more about HVMN and our offerings, visit www.hvmn.com pod. Also, by writing a review on our iTunes page and sending a screenshot to podcast at hvmn.com, we'll hook you up with $15 worth of HVMN store credit. Our last shout out goes out to our listener survey, which lets us know who you are better so we can continue making episodes you find most valuable. Visit go.hvmn.com slash podcast survey for that survey. It'll only take a few minutes and new submissions are eligible for an HVMN ketone giveaway. Until next time, eat well, train smart, and live your life.